right, fellas, we're back for another week of No Putts Given. And for those of you listening and watching, we know the NBA has suspended their season. There's no NCAA basketball happening. Spring training has been suspended. The players is going with no fans, and we're sure there's going to be more fallout from that. So if you're here out of pure desperation, we welcome you. And we're going to talk a couple of things golf, guys. You ready? Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. All right, so everybody welcome Harry, Tony, and Chris. I'm Miranda. Adam's not chatting with us this week, but don't worry, he is well. Guys, first off, thank you for being here, and we thought we'd start by giving everybody a little reprieve from coronavirus talk. They can listen to us and not have to think about quarantining themselves. What do you think? For now. For now. For now. Okay. This week, John Barba wrote us an article on two new direct-to-consumer golf ball brands, which we've talked about in the past. But, uh, Tony, can you give us a quick rundown on the two new brands that Barba detailed for us? Yeah, so the two brands are Seed and Quantix. Seed isn't necessarily new. They've been around for at least a year now. Uh, They actually kind of just missed out on our uh, ball test last year. And Quantix, Quantix tends to be, I guess you would say, is more brand new to the market. And and like sort of every other brand in that direct-to-consumer space, they each are kind of trying to find their, or, or at least put out a unique brand story. What I appreciate about the seed portion of the article is that they seem to be really honest about what they're doing. They're not overstating it. They're not trying to pass themselves off as, as ball engineers or, or guys that somehow stumbled on a way to make a better golf ball or something like that. They freely admit that they work out with the factory to create a design and that the designs themselves are, are really only possible because so much of the intellectual property in the golf space that has been in the golf ball space, I should say, that has been sort of core to to modern golf ball design has entered the public domain. And so when you have when you have a factory and engineers overseas who know how to put the various pieces together, you can make a golf ball that competes with, you know, pick a brand leader from a from a true performance perspective. And by that I mean ball speed, launch angle, and spin rates. You can put together a ball that is competitive with with big OEM offerings. Now the Quantix story is a little bit different. They actually have a gentleman. I think you have his name there. Uh, escapes me at the moment. Larry Card. Hold on. Let me say this. Cardorni- Cardorniga. Does that sound so right? It, Larry Cardorniga. Right? We'll just call him Larry. Larry. Uh, yes, Larry. Good old Larry. <laughs> so they have Larry and Larry. Larry worked on the. Uh, I believe the Torbellato when he was with Titleist, he has some experience with Max Fly and McGregor as well. Actually, was either designed or was part of the team that designed the ball that that Jack Nicholas uh, used to win the '86 Masters. So, some actual ball engineering experience. Uh, though I will say, right, a lot of that kind of predates what we would call the modern ball, and so I suspect even in the Quantix case, there's probably a good bit of of taking that public domain IP and and piecing it together to develop a, a golf ball as well. Now, Chris, Seed's sales approach is unique. They're actually a subscription service. Are they unique in that in the golf industry, or are there others like them? Um, you know, yes and no unique, I think, in the sense that that's exactly how they're billing it and selling it and kind of creating that structure around it in order to make that 
um, you know, an easy way for people to, uh, you know, to get the ball and then just set up, you know, set it up and go routinely. Not different from kind of what we saw like in the razor market not that long mm -hmm. ago where people could, you know, basically set themselves up on a subscription-based service and do that. Dollar Shave Club is what you're referencing. Dollar Shave Club, Harry's Razors, I mm -hmm. think was another one. Gillette now is doing it. So. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to say is... What a the, shitty stadium they have anyway. It, well, it, <laughs> <laughs> you could... Well... I, you know, I think the hard part for them is that, yes, well, the, uh, the mail order sense of it is, you know, super convenient. It would take very, very little for any other company to replicate that. And now all of a sudden, it's not that unique. It's like, oh, we made socks that have individual spots for each of your toes. And it's like, well... Okay, cool, but how hard is that for somebody else to replicate if they really want it? Not hard. I used to have toe socks in middle middle school, so they're actually to a thing. Toe socks are the best. That's <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think the other thing to think about with the ball stuff, too, like Tony mentioned, is that a lot of that, uh, the work kind of predates the modern ball, and we're talking about that kind of the idea of going to a solid core ball, which... Um, you know, depending on exactly which manufacturer we're talking about, we're really talking about 20 years ago, give or take. And the other part being, why is that IP stuff still actually viable now, um, even 20 years later after it first came out? Usually something that's, you know, the, the leaders in those industries have so far run ahead of everybody else that 20-year-old technology wouldn't really be that helpful. But in this case, it actually still is, right? I mean, the USGA has, as much as everybody's talking about, well, it's a golf ball and we need to roll it back or, and, and things like that, the reality is the ball, the, the USGA's restrictions on the golf ball are almost inarguably tighter, and we've talked about this before, than they are with the golf club. You have uh -huh. two different measures of speed that they put on it and, and test. They, they run sort of projections to, to see what the influence of aerodynamics will be on, on a distance measurement. So it's, it's really very, very difficult to engineer a golf ball that's, that's quantifiably longer, right? Again, you can, you can mess with compression, and we've talked about this, and then you start to – that's where feel starts to get into the equation and whether or not you, you want the, the longest ball if it means the hardest feeling ball. Those are the kind of conversations you have, but – Beyond that, it's it's basically just trying to adjust what we call launch and spin curves, right? Well, okay, today I want a ball that, that launches this high with this much spin, and, and the next one, well, we might dial that back, we might move it over here, and it's just kind of moving pieces around to create balls that are different from the ones that came out before, but not necessarily significantly better. And so within within that reality, it creates a lot of opportunities for for direct to consumer and small ball brands to navigate a sea of patents and create something that's every bit as viable as as just about anything else on the market. And guys, it seems like every couple of weeks we come on No Putts Given and we talk about a new direct to consumer golf ball brand. How close are we to the market just being so saturated that we're seeing a new one come on every week and they're not different enough for each other to make any sort of dent in the market? It's hard to say. I think you're always going to see brands come and go and a lot of a lot of the direct to consumer brand market or at least a, a segment of it is driven just by appeal so you find a a story you like or a, a logo you like something something in in how the ball is packaged from end to end that appeals to you uh, and that's very often the differentiator and the other thing to keep in mind 
there's not a lot of operating costs involved in starting a direct-to-consumer ball business. You essentially call or email a factory, work out an agreement, come up with some some packaging, a unique logo design, pay for the product, and then it's whatever your marketing plan happens to be, which is typically now we talked about this with the with the sub seventy Jason Highland story, where it's driven a lot by social media and direct interaction with the consumer, you don't necessarily need to run a, a commercial during the masters to be successful anymore. So as long as you have a plan and even a minimal, some sort of advertising budget that's, again, minimal, you can conceivably make it work, especially if you can attract golfers to your brand. Now, how how is the, um, how do I put this? Is this ball their own or have they got it from somewhere else? like other companies have when it comes to DTC. You know, we haven't we haven't cut the seed open and and Quantix is certainly saying that they have some uh kind of unique design in theirs. I I don't know. We haven't cut them. We haven't seen what's on the inside. We haven't we haven't really done any deep diving dive, but you know, I'm sure especially on the the dimples and the aerodynamics piece, factory balls even if they're adjusted factory balls tend to share dimple patterns because they're just really difficult to create. And so when you, you right. have one that works, you stick with it. We've talked about this before. And so, you know, I can't say that there are either one is identical to something else, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident you're going to find some, some similarities and some overlap. Yeah. I like the analogy you've used before of, you know, pizzas, right. And is it really engineering if, you know, you and I call the same pizza place, but we order slightly different pizzas, who's actually engineering the product? And then you have other companies when people ask, well, you know, what's different from a DTC company to, you know, anybody else in the industry or some of the industry leaders is that they are creating their own balls. They have their own factories, a lot, you know, a lot of cases in-house and they own their own restaurant as opposed to, you know, importing from someplace else. Yeah, and in just about all of these cases, I guess we're going to continue the the pizza analogy, right? The the ingredients. Absolutely. Nobody's developing new ingredients or even new recipes. It's it's just kind of a layering thing for the most part. You know, small tweaks here, small tweaks there. Sometimes, and I would guess very often for the the sole express purpose of being able to say that your ball is unique, it's not necessarily adding any real performance benefit. But again, just kind of tweaking the, the the equation just enough to say you have something that, that others don't. Harry, are any of these brands coming close to touching the sphere and quality of the big OEMs? I mean, that's really hard to say as we haven't tested them um, in the big test that we do. And when it comes to these these balls, could they compete? The only way to, to do is to put them to the test. Um, let me rephrase then. Would you personally play a direct-to-consumer brand ball? If it performed to my standards, yes. Okay. I would. Um, and again, I, I, I give Snell a go uh, mm-hmm. quite a few times, and I love I loved the, um, the distance off it. The spin rates were um, comparable to what my other balls would be like. I just couldn't spin it around the greens, and that's just me. And the way I deliver it to the club, so that ball unfortunately got got kicked out. Okay. And and we've been guilty of this in the past. I I don't like looking at sort of a performance result, right? Launch spin, even distance, and saying one ball is better than another. There are so many kind of variables that go into that. I think it's 
very often the, the truth is that that one ball is different from another from a performance perspective. And certainly there's enough information out there where any factory can can engineer a ball that is from a, a launch spin and ball speed perspective, similar, if not damn near identical to a Pro V run, right? You can, you can match that spec if you know what you're doing. The difference maker comes in, in the quality specification, and that's a lot harder for an average golfer to really even, even know anything about, right? Everybody talks about quality to some degree. As we've seen when we cut balls open, there's definitely a wide variation in invisible quality there. And there's some things too that, that we're gonna start taking a closer look at. Like what is, what is the range of compression within a box or multiple boxes or how much variation is there in weight, right? The quality, the consistency of the product. Uh, Size. <laughs> Are they all round, right? Do they all right. are they are they all conforming for size, and are they all round? So these are the sort of things that are are the real difference makers as you as you move through a box of balls and you know kind of lose one or it gets damaged and move on to the next one. It's that consistency and the and the well and, and the confidence that comes from knowing that this ball is going to do exactly what the last one did. And I think that as we start to dig and poke around more, that's where you're really going to find the biggest differences. So it's yeah, you can find in just about anybody's lineup and and when i say anybody i mean from bridgestone to vice to seed to snell just pick a brand you're very likely going to find a ball that with enough selection if they have two or three models that provides a reasonable performance specification for you the quality specification so much trickier to quantify and to a degree harder to notice unfortunately as well but i think i would contend that is really where the biggest difference in golf balls lie I'm kind of into analogies today for whatever reason, but you know, if Harry, if you and I were to play, you know, a round of 18 holes together, and someone came out only to watch one hole, could they make the conclusion that you and I are relatively equal golfers if they watched one hole? Yeah, they would. Yeah, they could. They might even get a very, very false picture and think that I'm the better golfer based on yeah, just that we, one hole. We know hole. that's not the correct answer. But. No, no. I mean, I'm taller, better looking, and all oh, okay, of those things. But yeah, but. Over 18 holes, you're more than 90, 95% of the time going to have the lower score. And based on those type of conclusions, that's where you could make some of those assessments. I'm the DTC brand and you're a pro V1. I think in that analogy, right? <laughs> Harry prefers Shrix on XV, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. I do, yes. This is, I, I think you would agree with me, both of you, would be the golf ball is only relative to the, the golfer. So if a golfer th is playing handicap-wise is 25 and he's going to hit loads of balls into a bush, can't get that consistent strike, can't get that consistent launch, spin, characteristics, whatever it is, the ball might not matter as much as to him than it does to me. So when it comes to that kind of ball... It's a finite fix. Once you get your game on track, then you can start then you tinkering can start, with like, things like your ball. I've, I've had lots of things. golfers come to me and say, what ball should I play? And I said, well what do you let me have a look at what you do what kind of game you have first and then if if i say all right you need to really go get lessons and figure that out first before you can put yourself into a ball because until you can get um a, a consistent swing than the way you deliver it to the ball every time a ball might not be as important there there's a practicality to it and the the money right if you're paying That's full ride one. for for pro v1s you're paying $55 a dozen give or take and you're you're losing six around it doesn't make sense but 
Um, but there's also something to be said for understanding that, you know, fitting for a golf ball, even for inconsistent players matters just like it does for for fitting golf clubs yeah i'm definitely not saying that that's that's not a that's not a factor either is to get fit well again it is there is a a practical financial consideration and that's where these dtc brands certainly bring a lot of value right for under 30 a dozen if you can go to costco and and find the kirklands which yeah they're good you know, not the one where the covers were peeling off notwithstanding um for what are they 15 bucks a dozen i mean I think the Kirkland Plus or something like that. I think it was. Yeah, and you, and you still with a ball like that, you you may not get the absolute consistency, and you may not get the absolute quality, but you're you're still going to get the benefits of a urethane ball, where more green side spin and and better feel and things like that 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 golfers are are going to appreciate regardless of ability level. So now these these balls that um, Barber, um, the contacts and um, the Quantas seed and seed, yep. What what pieces are we talking about? Is it a one piece all the way up to a four four piece? I don't know about a one piece ball. <laughs> what would a one piece ball be? You not had that one piece ball? A ping pong ball. I think it's a yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think seed is in the the two and three piece. Most of them are in the two and three piece. I think Barbara details it in his article. Yeah, it's um, all there. Yeah. yeah, not a lot of four piece in the direct to consumer space in general. It's more protected by IP still. That's why you're seeing the three-piece. Well, right? and it, it's a cost thing too, right? Anytime you add a layer, you, you add cost. Well, and another thing to be inconsistent or consistent around in terms of production, right? Right, exactly. So one more layer you introduce, not only cost, but complexity. Yep. But Tony, you said you should never, ever play a two-piece ball. I, yeah, I just, I, again, with, with the inexpensive offerings available again, DTC, Costco, wherever you want to go. Yeah. Like you, you just shouldn't because you're, you're never going to get the green side performance. You're never going to get the spin. It's just like, it's, it's the physics behind the design. I have a personal interest question. Tony, you referenced multiple times dimple patterns on balls. What effect does, do varying dimple patterns have? Like lift and drag, um, it, the flight of a ball, uh, in in a way, and there was there was a fascinating white paper that somebody wrote about uh, did some research on dimple patterns and uh, the the reverse Magnus effect. Okay, hold on, break that one down. Yeah, so at certain speeds and under certain conditions, the the dimple pattern will actually cause the ball to effectively just drop out of the sky. In a matter of speaking, if it's not hmm. well executed. And so what you're really talking about is, you know, the dimples kind of control what happens once the ball's in the air. So as Harry said, lift and drag. So if you're wondering like, hey, why does one ball launch higher than another when, when a golf club has the same loft? Well, that, that's your dimples getting it up in the air. And then once it's up in the air, it's sort of the, the ability to kind of move through the, the air and sustain itself against the, the turbulence, if you will, as it, it moves mm -hmm. through space. And you have some designs which are more resilient to crosswinds. And it's it's kind of like this fascinating thing that we all sort of just overlook because... Right. I've always just known golf balls have dimples. Right. And none of us is like... No buying decision that I know of has ever come down to a <laughs> rational or scientific look at the benefits of one dimple pattern over another, right? That's, that's a level that golfers don't go to. But... When it doesn't go so far, if you're like playing on a windy day, a pro is not going to say, I'm going to play this ball over this ball because it's windy. It doesn't go that far, right? No, no, no. you're not going to see a pro change balls, but you will see a pro comment like the, uh, well, we'll throw a shameless plug here. 
the the uh, the Shrixon. You know, you talk to to their tour players, and they'll tell you that one of the things they like about the Shrixon ball is that it really holds its flight in a crosswind a little bit better. So that's mm-hmm. it's one of the things that that Shrixon would describe as high MOI or forgiveness in a golf ball. Okay. When I was out at Titleist, I you know my my numbers could be off here, but the entire sort of the the influence of dimples on the entire flight of a golf ball has never been successfully measured because it's like the computing horsepower is astronomical. So I I forget what the actual numbers were thrown at it, but it was like a massive undertaking, and I believe that they were able to map. I think it was like the first two and a half seconds. So there's a lot of unknowns in the dimple space and we're kind of way off track here, but it's, <laughs> it's really fascinating. And, and long story short, like, yeah, the, the dimples matter. And that is one of the areas where, where kind of direct to consumer brands often have to rely on, on stock dimple patterns that may in fact work better with a four piece than a three piece or mm-hmm. things like that. Whereas larger companies can continually evolve their dimple patterns to work, uh, to be optimized for their for their newer designs. It's also why our ball tests, when we do that, you can't do it inside, right? That's if people understood dimple stuff better, they wouldn't watch videos or things online and go, oh, this person compared ball A and ball B inside where there isn't flight and there isn't air to impact the flight of the ball. And people go, oh, geez, that's super interesting. I, I wish more people understood this is exactly why you can't do a ball test indoors, why we have to do some of the things the way that we do them. And we're totally off track now. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you brought it back around very nicely. <laughs> but, but, no, there, there are things you can do indoors, um, but you, you have to do so knowing that you're, there's always going to be kind of an asterisk next to your, your number because you're with any launch monitor, you're going to kind of get the lift effect you're going to be able to to see the lift portion of the dimple contribution but what happens once it's up in the air kind of that that drag portion that that you don't get indoors and that's that's Mm -hmm. a fair and honest assessment of things which is why we we use a consistent golf ball in all of our tests indoor for our club tests the ripple outdoors outdoors gets tricky too because now you're introducing the elements like even a little bit of wind and so all right i'm seeing what the dimple did but how much was was maybe wind contribution and so unless you know Titleist has a weather station so that they can any <laughs> right. every shot they know exactly what was happening so there's ball testing is complex and it's it's you know impossible to do 100% properly indoors and it's difficult to do outdoors and that's not to say we're not going to do it and get better at it but you know you just have to understand as with any test there's some there are some there's always challenges I mean I have one I have one question that is going to be obviously way off topic of what we actually going on but you know you know when you're playing golf and you say oh the wind knocked that ball down it didn't go 10 yards further like what is actually happening is it just the spin is that the winds changed the spin and gone like top spin or what like what actually happens to the ball it's in in fact a, a little bit again i i kind of mentioned that reverse magnus effect but it's like and, and google it and look it up and i'm not even going to try and explain it to you but it's sort of where the ball moves against the anticipated flight to a degree and so when you have you have dimple designs that that hold up well to to kind of headwind and others that just don't and you know when when we looked at our ball test going back to that i would say observationally the the kirkland three-piece ball struggled a little bit in a when we did have the wind kick up i think if anybody played you know anything prior to the last generation of nike resin balls 
those those things were notoriously bad in in when the wind kicked up. I would liken it to be, you know, the ball would would behave as almost as if it was hit with birdshot. Like you would hit something, <laughs> and you're like, that looks good, <laughs> and then it would just drop out of the air. And so that's that's the kind of thing where, yeah, I mean, wind is going to have an influence on the flight of a golf ball. And yes, you're going to lose distance in a wind, but it's not it's not a you know if if it's the wind you lose this much. The dimples come into play there quite a bit. Okay, we'll move on. Thank you for that <laughs> education and for humoring me for a second. That went off the rails. That's cool. <laughs> That's okay. It's not bad when it goes off the rails. That's probably where we get our best info out. But last week we took Twitter responses to a prompt that we put out. So this week we put out a very specific question. If one company's R-Flex shaft is another company's S-Flex and they all tell us fitting matters, why can't the golf industry come up with an industry standard for flex? Who wants to take this one right off the bat? I have, I have my own opinions, but I'm going to let the experts, which is Tony and Chris, um, debunk this. So, I mean, I used to be firmly in this, the camp of like, well, I mean, we should, we should be able to clearly and consistently define what it means to be a regular flex shaft and a stiff flex shaft and an X flex shaft so that we are all sort of coming from the same place. And then you dig deeper into the golf industry and you're realizing like you, you want them to, uh, to, gr- to agree on how to define the flex of something like this, which is way more complex than it, than it looks. When as an industry, they can't really even agree on the definition of an inch, right? So Marshall, who's uh, one of the guys at Fujikura who works with the tour players, literally has a drawer full of different rulers. What? Yeah, he has a Callaway ruler and a TaylorMade ruler and a Titleist ruler. Wait a minute. I thought that was just already standardized. Why are we trying to standardize an inch? Because an inch is an inch is an inch. Yeah, so every company measures a little bit different and fits things a little bit differently onto the ruler. And so, you know, if... God forbid he uses a uh, a Callaway ruler to cut a tailor-made club. He's going to run into a little trouble because it's it's the measurement is going to be off a little bit here or there. So, hmm. um, yeah, point being, it's very difficult for, for the golf industry to even standardize something as basic as, as one inch on a ruler. So Something that's already standardized. <laughs> <laughs> so with this, with, with Flex, the kind of the... Conventional measurement is CPM cycles per minute, which is basically you clamp the butt end into something and you put a weight on the tip and you kind of spring it and in the machine it oscillates and registers kind of that that rate of oscillation. Cycles per minute, yeah. Exactly. But that's a measurement of of frequency just at the butt portion of the shaft. Um, And just for some kind of, to give you just an idea of how extreme the ranges can be here, I went into the Cool Clubs S3 database. You know, they measured probably, definitely hundreds, possibly thousands of shafts. Found two shafts that were measured to be half a gram apart, both labeled stiff flex, both from from manufacturers most golfers have heard of, 30 CPMs apart. No way. So most fitters would tell you that's that's pretty much three flex difference. Three. That's crazy. All stiff flex. And so you would think, well, why can't we just all agree on a range if it's for our regular stiff and, and X and whatever, but it's it's way more complex with, than that because the shaft is not, this the, the stiffness is not consistent throughout the length. And so you have like this, you can measure the handle section and have a shaft that comes out to be what, what some might call extra stiff. And then you, you move a third of the way down the shaft and now you have something that's closer to stiff and then down further you get back closer to X and then a super stiff tip. And so depending on where you, you measure on the shaft, you're going to get 
different variations because again these these things are are designed to bend differently and in different places in different ways depending on the force being different kick points and that's i mean that's really kind of even underselling it quite a bit like that's just one piece of it and so you know you you have sort of like the shaft is different at every point throughout the throughout its length so that's one challenge you can't just measure one place and go well that's it it's this number and therefore it's stiff so that's one challenge um, you could say, hey, we're going to measure at four points, which is what Miyazaki does. And that that's they call it their universal flex code. And that gives you a bit more information. But that requires everybody to kind of standardize on Miyazaki's rules and Miyazaki's equipment. And that's not going to happen either. So you have a situation where there's there's way more to a shaft than just one point of measurement. You've got different people measuring with different tools and under different sets of rules. Tony, and for just, those of you it, that are listening, Tony's so excited. <laughs> he just knocked his camera off kilter trying to show us. That was actually the place. dog. That was the oh, puppy. never mind. Oh, never he's mind. blaming it on the dog again. Uh-huh. Short story made very, very long by me. A golf shaft is just way, way, way too complex of a thing to cover in a single measurement. If, if I said, hey, what size jeans do you wear? You know, you might say, well, Chris, I don't know, I'm going to be nice and say 36. That's a great analogy because I wear different sizes and different brands. And and different, like what's what's your inseam length, right? Pants have a length and, and that's kind of important thing if you want pants that fit you. So you need to know a second <laughs> number and then other brand and brands will tell you how they fit in your butt and on your waist and through your thighs. There's all these little details that are necessary to know if something might even fit you a little bit that you're not going to get from just a single number. Well, I was going to ask the question here. Can we simplify it even further? We talk about regular flex and stiff flex. Harry, you fit people all the time. What golfers use regular flex? What golfers use stiff flex? Can you break it well, down? Well, then, the, then you go into a, a can of worms there because okay. you have swing speeds that you, you fit guys in, but then you could have someone who loads the shaft differently than another person, which could bump them into a different flex zone. There's a lot that goes into just fitting a, a person just straight off the bat. Um, but it all depends on that individual because they could be right in between of two flexes. Speed, tempo, transition, yeah, attack angle, path, all of these things play a role. And unfortunately, like I said, this is this thing that looks really simple is actually really complex. And and so you know, when you're trying to market this to people and put things into terms that they can understand and get them interested in buying and, and trying to, as best you can to, for them to find the one that, that works best for them if they're just going to walk into a golf store and, and buy a driver that already has one of these things in it, you have to simplify. And so our regular stiff X, whatever, that's about as simple as it can possibly get. But unfortunately, it, it really is just the kind of the tip of the iceberg of a shaft story. Yeah, no, I, I went and grabbed a shaft, too, that looked like Tony's, so I wouldn't feel so left out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the I think it's one of those things that, is it simple? Yeah, conceptually, it's really simple. Um, but it's made infinitely more complex by where we've gotten to in the conversation. And what I mean by that, as long as we go with a single term like stiff, X, amateur, uh, heaven forbid the old ladies flex. Um, you know, soft I, I, regular. Yeah, as long as we have those terms, getting any type of consistency isn't going to. I don't think it's going to be possible. It's my analogy is the uh, the temperature of good green chili at a Mexican restaurant. Um, if you go to a really good one, hot, medium, mild, maybe totally different than another place across the street where they're hot 
is like, oh, this is really lame. But, but there's this place, Efren's, in Colorado, that their medium green chili, I mean, it would get Tony halfway back to where he was on Wednesday. And, I mean, <laughs> this was, you know, so that's a whole different topic. But my, uh, I guess the last thing I want to say about Shafts is um, kind of what Tony was getting to initially, meaning if we actually had three sections. So if we talked about it as kind of the handle or the butt section, then you talked about kind of the medium or the middle of it as, you know, the mid, uh, and then the, you know, the last 12 to 18 inches, kind of that tip. Those are ways that a lot of companies will at least break things up into segments of the shaft to determine what they call an EI profile, right? So it's basically how stiff is this section, how stiff is this section, and how stiff is this section. You know, you can at least start to maybe make some comparisons there, even though companies are still going to be different. I mean, the only thing the industry can standardize is that any club that's max is like super high launching, high forgiving, high MOI. Like, that's about the only thing we can agree on in the industry, and we did that by accident. Let's hammer this point home. If you're going to invest any kind of money in an in a upgrade, aftermarket, premium, exotic, whatever word you want to use, shaft, take the time to go see a fitter because he's, he's going to understand that all of these, all of these things like, like stiff is at, very, at, at best a guide. And it's a loose term. Here's my question about that, then. If... Say, you, to go back to the pants analogy, I can go to a department store, pick out a pair of pants, try it on, and without being a fashion designer can decide, hey, these fit or they don't. So then are you at the mercy of a fitter to understand every shaft on the market to find the one that best fits you? And do we know that all fitters know that? So, uh, you know, the reality is there, there are only but so many ways a shaft can bend. And okay. so if you look across every manufacturer's lineup, you're, you're going to find a lot of overlap and a lot of stuff that is, is very, very similar. And so, okay. you know, I don't, I don't think it's realistic for a fitter to know every detail of every shaft on the market, but he's, you know, good fitters are going to be confident and know the, you know, pick, pick a brand, right. He's going to be familiar with that lineup. He's, he's going to know what's going to maybe add some spin or, or take some spin off or maybe help the ball go a little bit more to the left side or, or things like that. So as long as you kind of have awareness of a lineup or two or, or two or three and understand what those each shaft in those lineups, how they're different and, and what they can deliver, you're, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be in good shape. And I, and I think most of the fitters, you know, certainly any of the fitters we we recommend would would be able to handle all that and then some. Yeah, and I think you see too like companies that do, you know, aftermarket companies that do a better job of educating their accounts and educating people on that. Um, you know, that helps the consumer as well because then yeah, maybe you get uh, a certain location that really really knows one or two lines very extensively. Um, you know, they may not recommend a third or fourth line, but that's precisely why. You know, you see certain companies spending the amount of time that they do going on the road into accounts, helping to educate and inform them about the shafts, because then that fitter is going to be far more confident with that particular that particular line. So it's a good strategy on their part. Ultimately, it helps the consumer, too. Yeah, and I okay. think just keep in mind, the entire language of, of shafts has been simplified to the point where anybody can understand it. So we talk about stiff and, and 60 gram and... What was the other example? I was, I was a uh, high launch, low launch, right? Oh that boy. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, well, that gives you something to begin to wrap your head around. It's, it's ultimately almost meaningless. As it's just, you know, because it's been, it's been 
oversimplified to be consumable, but also oversimplified to the point where a lot of the meaning is actually lost. It's meaningless, yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's move into hashtag Ask My Golf Spy. So this is where we did ask for your questions that you want us to talk about on today's episode of No Putts Given. And we told you we were going to give you a reprieve from the coronavirus, but we did get a question that says, what effect will COVID have on the golf equipment industry? It is by far not the most important issue, but it is in your lane. Given the degree to which products depend on trade with China, will there be shortages of products this cycle? It's already happened. Yes. It's already happened. I've seen it coming through uh, conversing with all these companies and these OEMs that say, hey, you know, it's we're not going to be able to get your product in in time because the coronavirus it's is kicking kicking China. our ass um, and it's delaying all the products coming over and that's that's just not happening with one that's pretty much happened across the board that that well, outsourced and imagine the because it's so far spread it's not just products produced in China we're worrying about at this point right so if you kind of look at the timeline of this when when the coronavirus first hit in China it was during the Lunar New Year break. So basically all of the factories that, that produced the, the equipment for the golf industry were already shut down. And then it kind of broke out. And what happened was they, they didn't reopen. And okay. there's still some lingering. And we're seeing it. I think I think the, the, the right answer to your question is that the, the immediate impact depends on the size of the brand. And I reached out all the way back when, when we were first, you know, when this was still called the Wuhan virus. Mm-hmm. I reached out to, to several of my OEM contacts, the bigger guys, and was like, hey, are you guys kind of nervous about you know, the impact of this. And at the time, and I, and I think this is probably still the case. So if you're dealing with a, a larger brand like a Callaway or a Titleist or somebody that size, those guys are going to have inventory on hand to get them through a reasonable stretch, you know, six months, give or take, probably. So they're going to be fine with the 2019 product line. 2020, if this thing continues to drag on and, and manufacturing is shut down, you could see product launches delayed, uh, even for the larger companies. You can't sell a product you don't have. You probably don't want to even go into detailed announcements if you don't have all your prototypes and are confident that you can get your, your product over here in time for whatever your launch date is. Now, that's the big guys, the small guys, um, direct-to-consumer ball companies, probably I would throw this in, smaller golf club companies, anybody, you know, Harry mentioned some of the soft good guys, any, anybody who does not have the, the size and the financial position to maintain a significant inventory and sort of just has it, has it come in as needed is going to be in trouble. In fact, we, we've already had one product launch from a, a smaller equipment brand. We just got word delay today that it was going to be delayed and specifically related to coronavirus. So I think as you see that, as, as this continues, and right now it's, you know, the, the trends don't look good, I think is probably the best way to put it. I think the two, the two simplest answers are yes and I don't know. You know, is there going to be an impact? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so many things that are happening are really unprecedented in so many ways. So we don't really know how this story plays out. We don't really have a whole lot to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Different things are literally happening. I mean, things uh, our high school just canceled or just postponed a lot of its uh, spring season, and that happened within the last hour or so. 
I don't know, you know, what's Monday, Tuesday going to look like as compared to today? Oh, good gracious. Every five minutes I've opened Twitter and come up with something new that's suspended or postponed or... Yeah, it, it could be. It could be a real challenge for the smaller brands, right? You, mm. you know, if you, if you don't have inventory, you don't have anything to sell. And if you don't have anything to sell, you're not bringing in money. And at some point, the lights have to be paid for and your rent has to be paid for and and when you're a smaller brand you're certainly more susceptible to something like this and you know i i don't know how much the industry has planned for something like this i know quietly that a lot of production has been slowly shifting out of china so you're seeing more in vietnam and uh, and things like that but that is that is to sort of address the fact that Chinese labor is costs are, are going up, so it's more expensive to produce in China, and there are tariff considerations directly related to China. So they've they've tried to, to a degree, tried to China proof some of their business that way. But you know, once you start talking about pandemics, it's you know you you, you <laughs> it's it's hard to shift that anywhere. Well, and even if it's one part of the supply chain, if there's thirty four different elements to the supply chain, and one of those goes out, any cog in the wheel can throw that entire element of production off. I was talking to another another OEM contact. A lot of their stuff's made in uh, in Japan, but there were certain elements that were exported to China, kind of outsourced to China to do, and that threw off absolutely everything. So, you know, I think that's the point saying things like pandemic, you know, literally meaning across the globe, that it's just, it, it can be just one small part of the production process too. So that's why I'd say, again, we're kind of in an unprecedented situation. And, and I think if anybody had a clear idea of what you know was going to kind of play out hopefully they would have shared that information with people by now but i don't think anybody really does i i I, I just think they don't yeah like i said i i think i think the bigger brands are okay for now but if it drags they won't be okay and 2020 is going to be going to be in in jeopardy to a degree and so we we could actually see some unique and and changing product cycles depending on whose factories come back online when okay we'll move on to the next question bugsy golf 450 says cobra single length irons question mark would they still make them if dechambeau switched manufacturers yes absolutely yes yeah they would yeah yeah okay moving on Ballpark. Yeah. I mean, we, there's not much more to say. I mean, other than ballpark single length irons are in any given year, plus or minus 50% of Cobra's entire iron sales. So yeah. at this point, Bryson or no Bryson, you keep doing that. And the other thing to keep in mind is not only has among the, the, the large OEM, so all respect to Edel, uh, Edel and Sterling, Cobra has absolutely positioned itself as the leader in the one length space. And so even if Bryson goes somewhere else and somebody else starts cranking out irons, it's going to be a while before Cobra you know, is, has kind of lost its advantage in the market with the years of R&D it already has into this. So Bryson or no Bryson, Cobra is very much a single length iron company. Okay, next one uh, comes from our friend Paul, looks like from Facebook. And Paul, if I say your last name wrong, please feel free to correct me on whatever social media platform you prefer. Paul Kielwasser, I believe. Um, There's no way says, you got it right. What would you say? I, I, you okay. know, I'd call him Paul. That's yeah. what I said, our friend Paul. But <laughs> Paul, Paul, is, Paul, as far as Paul's sitting right next to Larry. It's all good. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, like I said, yell at me if you need to. But he says, allowed tolerances. Wedges show a bounce, and it's not close when measured after purchase. Lofts on drivers are almost always off from stated. Address why it's not actual, and can it ever be? Wedge bounce differences seem ridiculous. Tolerances. It's a case of a Rolling Stone song, right? It's, you know, you can't always get what you need, but sometimes you might find you get what you want or however it goes. Wait, what? Yep. <laughs> you can't always always, always get, get what you want, what but you sometimes... Want. Right. Yeah, but you get what you need. There you go. Point being, and, you know, to the effect of, we'll stamp on there what the consumer wants to see, but we'll build in what they need. And meaning that a lot of times the bounce numbers will be off because there's a vanity idea that people are playing to. Again, basically saying that golfers aren't smart enough to objectively decide what they need and they need a 12 degree driver but they want it to say nine or ten um no different than like tony was saying you know me and my 36 pants i prefer uh you know a 36 that really is super stretchy as opposed to like a really tight 38 because it's a vanity thing right so that's that's my answer after butchering the rolling stones yeah, there, there's there's <laughs> definitely a vanity piece in that, right? Um, you talk to most wedge designers, they will tell you that that more golfers would benefit from high bounce wedges. Most golfers don't want high bounce wedges; they want that low bounce. And so, if you're you're trying to give a golfer what he needs in terms of bounce, you have to cheat a little bit, just as as manufacturers have done with driver loft for years. The other ripple here is that. Depending on the brand, this isn't true in, in any case, but, but keep in mind there is a, a direct correlation between bounce and loft. So if I take a 54 degree wedge and bounce it and, and bend it to 56, I've also added two degrees of bounce. So, and, and the ripple here is that a 5410 and a 5612, that's the same head. That is the identical glove. Those aren't being right. manufactured differently. They're coming out of the same molds. They're bending them to make it either the 5410 or the 5612, for example, and then they're putting the stamp on it. And my hunch is that sometimes in the production process, you know, maybe maybe the bending isn't quite right, or you know, metal does like to kind of return to where it started, and so you know, you kind of have to bend it past sometimes. So what happens when you have uh, a forged iron compared to a cast iron, like if you bend it so many degrees, it's going to snap in a cast. Yeah, nobody's nobody's bending them extreme amounts. It, it tends to be like a 54 and a 56. There there tends to be overlap in there. Like I said, the the 5410 and the 5612 or 548 and a 5610. You see that same thing with with 50 58s and 60s. That's where you kind of see these things because from a from a pricing perspective, right? We've talked about mold costs before. Molds are really, really expensive. So if you can use one mold to make two two clubs, you're, you're saving, saving a considerable thousands. amount of money. And so yep. I, I think nobody's probably going to admit to it, but I think there's probably some tolerances that get lost by by creating a design spec that specifically forces you to bend the club to hit a spec. All right, next question. John McCoy, I got that one right. Talk about the best way for a player to prepare to get fit for clubs. Golf is a series of peaks and valleys. If you get fit in a valley, it's going to yield a different fitting outcome. Huge ball speed difference when you're missing the sweet spot or off your game. How many people warm up? The fitting sessions I have done were not nearly as effective as they could have been. So what do we do pre-fitting uh, that is probably more important? Drink. No. Um, <laughs> have a couple of beers. <laughs> 
No, this is one of the things. Like I've had, you know, my my last OEM fitting. I went out to Titleist and shanked balls for about an hour. It's just one of those. <laughs> seriously, it was. Uh, I, I tell people every year I get the shanks for about a two week period, and I just happen to have it at the wrong time. So things go wrong in fittings, right? You're, it's very difficult to to go in and be in in the ideal place in in your game. But there are some things, some things I think you can do to. To mitigate that, warming up is key, right? Make sure you warm up without overdoing it. You know, don't go nuts and hit 200 balls the day before you're fitting because you want to be peak. Don't wear yourself out in advance is the basic stuff, right? Eat a good breakfast. And, and the other thing I would say is is stay loose. Don't don't overthink it. Don't don't turn it into this intense thing where you you tense up and you're just really trying too hard. Just try and stay relaxed through the entire process and and be honest with the fitter and you know don't don't be don't be the guys like this is not what I normally do. You know, like if you hit bad shots, admit <laughs> it because that's that's part of why you went to a fitter is to mitigate that kind of stuff. So you know be be open about your game, be open with the fitter, go in relaxed. And, and the other thing I would say, especially for, for guys like me who, who live in, in colder climates and have to shut down for months at a time, there'll be plenty of fitters who tell you that the best time to get fit is at the end of the golf season where you're, you've been playing all year, you're kind of grooved in, your swing is what it is, whereas a lot of the stuff comes out, like all this stuff hits the market in January and February. And so the impulse is to go out, want to go out and buy this new stuff when you're you're rusty and you haven't been swinging and you haven't been playing. So there's a little bit of a conflict there. So, you know, that that's kind of my last recommendation here is to, to get fit in a period of time when you've been playing, not necessarily consistently good golf, but out playing consistently. Get fit at the peak instead of the valley if we're talking about it in season or out of season. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Okay. I think two, you know, two other things to add. One is define your fitting objectives Boom. beforehand. So, are you trying to go in? Are you trying to maximize distance? Um, are you getting over an injury? You know, and that's going to play a role. Are you? Have you not been fit for 10, 15 years? You know, what is it you're looking to achieve? Is it dispersion? Is, you know, really be honest with yourself. Or what are you looking to get out of it? Because if you don't define what you want to get out of it, that's exactly what you're going to get. I think the other thing, too, is hopefully you can work with a fitter that it isn't a one-time experience. So you go in and get fit on a Tuesday, and you know they're willing to give you some time, whatever. See you hit, hit, hit some balls outside if, you, you know, say we're doing an iron fitting. Um, you know, let you take it out on the course two, three, four times. Come back in and see is anything materially different than it was a week or two ago. Because ultimately, if that fitter really wants to help you and wants to help you improve, they're not going to help you only improve for that Tuesday, right? They're going to help you down the road as well to see what kind of, you know, alterations, you know, though they're probably pretty small, might need to be made with your setup, tweaking things. You know, so find somebody that says, hey, you know, we'll take four, five, six weeks to make sure that we get this right for you if that's what you want to do. My Tuesday fittings are always off. At the end of the day, it's uh, it's all in the hips. That's all it is. <laughs> well, my, my advice would be is be honest with yourself and make sure that you think that you're at a point where your game is consistent enough to be fit. Uh, I think uh, I hate that. With club fitting, there are a ton of variables involved, right? There's, there's the basic stuff. Let's, let's get the length right. 
So you can, inconsistent or not, you can get a little, you can do quite a bit just with length. And in fact, shortening clubs is often a way to make an inconsistent golfer more consistent. Lie angle, right? How are you setting up to the ball? If, you, if you're a guy who, you know, my biggest improvement with my iron striking at the end of the year came from some trial and error and, and realizing that, oh my God, I should bend these irons two degrees flat. And so just by making a simple change to a static variable without doing much of anything different with my swing, I improve the consistency of my iron play. And that's the kind of thing that a fitter, even if, even if he says, and this is, this is reasonably, you know, this is, this is fair and you hope a good fitter would do, say, hey, you know what, your, your ball striking isn't good enough where I can reasonably justify putting you into a $350 upgraded, you know, exotic shaft with whatever cool freaking logo is on it that you like but there are some things i can do that from a from a loft and and length and and lie angle and all these these things that are a critical part of the fitting that in today's times where we obsess over the the launch properties of the driver and, and spin rates and things like that these these little things that are an integral part of every fitting can make a huge difference for an inconsistent golfer you know, I think we all have this idea that you go into a fitting scenario and you you are all but guaranteed to pick up 15 yards and, and shave five strokes off your score That's and improve true. your ball striking yeah. and striking infinitely when, when in fact, the objective should always be to improve by by whatever margin is reasonable. And if you've never ever been fit and you're a competent ball striker, you, you have the opportunity for a massive improvement. If you're you're, you've been fit several times and you've been competently fit several times, or if you're sort of in a, in a place where you're, you're inconsistent, you're, you're not going to see as much improvement, but there's still always an opportunity to improve. And so I guess final piece of advice about fitting and, and what to take into it is, is realistic expectations, right? If, if you do spray the ball all over the place, don't expect that a fitting is going to turn you into a to a five handicap trending a soft towards draw. scratch. <laughs> right, it's not a it's not a panacea. It's not a magic solution. I think I do think that's one reason people tend to use it maybe as a crutch or an excuse, like oh, I'm not going to get fit. I'm not good enough. I'm not hitting it good enough. I'm not consistent enough. Where the reality is, it's kind of like people if they said, well, I'm going to wait to have kids until I'm ready to be a parent. How many, I mean, good Lord, I would not have seven children. I'll tell you that right now. Tony, I don't know if Tony would ever have one. And the reality is if people use that as an excuse, you know, we, we would probably stop to procreate altogether. That's a really good point. You know, there's always an opportunity to improve through a good fitting unless, you know, maybe yesterday you had a fitting that was equally as good. Okay, well, thank you for all of your questions. We'll probably throw out some questions again or ask for your questions again because that was fun. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for today, guys. Uh, and just a quick message to the listeners or watchers, wash your hands. Please take care of yourself. Keep an eye on your elderly loved ones and cool it on buying all the toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Some of us just run out sometimes and want like one pack. So leave some for the rest of us. And we're going to end that with the Rolling Stones. Chris, take it away. <laughs> we out. We out. <laughs>